Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. All right, if you have a Bible, you can take it out to John chapter 13. We're going to have the text on the screen behind us, so uh, you can follow along there. And... um, As a church, we're busy preaching through the Gospel of John, and it's always a joy to um, go verse by verse and to allow God to speak to us from all of Scripture. Uh, I know that our community groups this past week uh, were wrestling once again uh, with the doctrines of grace and uh, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And and one of the questions was, you know, why do we keep revisiting this, this difficult topic? And it's not that we keep revisiting it, it's that the Bible keeps revisiting it, right? And so we want to be a church and a people. We want to be Christians who live in the Word of God. And, um, and sometimes people say, oh, you know, are you guys into prophecy? Are you guys prophetic? And I, and I always say, absolutely, because what is prophecy? It is the declaring forth of God's Word. Amen? In its purest form. And we want to be a church under the supreme authoritative Word of God, and that is in the Scriptures. Now, as we get to chapter 13, it's a very interesting chapter because it culminates a whole lot of teaching and it almost immediately hits the brakes. So John, if he ever knew anything about automobiles, has got his foot on the brake now because what's going to happen from John 13 to 17 is he's going to slow down the story almost to a snail's pace. And so everything from John chapter 1 to 12 covered 33 years. Think about that. From John chapter 1 to John chapter 12 covers 33 years of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry. But now John 13 to 17 is one night. Did you ever realize that? In your Bible, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all happens. All of that teaching happens in less than 24 hours. And it's very, very interesting. Known as the upper room discourse or Jesus' final farewell. And so in this final night, in this one night, John chapter 13 begins with a very famous moment called the washing of the disciples' feet. The 12 disciples have their feet washed. And so what we have in our text today is 24 dirty feet or 240 dirty toes. Whichever way you want to think about it, let's read the text together. Here we go. John 13. We first read the first five verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, we've been talking about this hour, right? The hour of his death. When the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel 
that was wrapped around him. Let's just pause there. So it's Thursday night, right? It's Thursday night in the Passover week. They're in a large second-story room. It's the upper room. The next day is Friday. Friday afternoon, Jesus will be crucified. So we have a timeline. And this is Jesus' final discourse or his final speech with his disciples. And a few things I want us to see here in the beginning is that Jesus is not confused. Jesus is not insecure. Jesus is not fearful. Look at verse 3. It says there, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. What's going to happen on Friday? I wonder if he slept this night. How do you feel when you have a big meeting or an exciting event or you're leaving on an overseas trip and so you set 10 alarms, right? Because you don't want to miss it. Or whatever it might be. How is Jesus feeling? Well, we know how Jesus is feeling. He's certain. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. He knows the details. Yes, he knows that there's going to be a cross. There's going to be a whip. There's going to be a betrayal. There's going to be nails driven through his feet and hands. There's literally going to be blood, sweat, and tears. But he's confident in his destiny. He's not insecure. He lacks nothing. All things have been given to him. Why? Because he's God, right? This has been the whole point of John's gospel is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we're not dealing here with some kind of event that was inflicted upon him. No, no, he's, he's in supreme control of this impending next 24 hours. The second thing I want you to see here is that the, the, the big idea in this final discourse, which covers five chapters, what is the big idea? And the big idea is that Jesus wants to communicate this to his disciples, that although you are deeply flawed, you are deeply loved. We see it in verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Here it is. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the bitter end. Although you are deeply flawed, you are deeply loved. And this becomes a constant theme through the next five chapters over this final night. How many times is Jesus going to tell the disciples on this last night, I love you? And in how many ways is he going to say it? He's going to say it in a variety of ways. He's going to display it. He's going to say it. He's going to teach it. He's going to enact it. In fact, it's mentioned 34 times in this farewell speech. And it ends in chapter 17, the very final verse. Verse 26, where he says this in his high priestly prayer, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This theme of love. He wants the disciples, he wants us to know the depths and the degree of his eternal love. Now, he displays this, he enacts it in the foot washing event, right? 
But I don't want us to make the mistake that the foot washing of the disciples is the ultimate display of his love. It is an important act, but it's not the ultimate act. In fact, it's a picture of a greater act of service. So let's consider it. Verse 4 and 5. It says, He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking the towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Let's just picture the scene here. They are reclining at a large table. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets up. And he adopts the dress code of a common slave. He, he fills the basin with water and he moves towards the disciples to wash their feet. And, and, and so here's the context. This wasn't an, an, an uncommon event, but the person doing it shouldn't be doing it. In, in this ancient culture, people would walk everywhere. And if you didn't walk, you, you perhaps had some form of animal transport, some kind of coach or horseback or some kind of carriage. And, and the roads were dusty, the roads were dirty, and they were covered in animal ex excrement. I mean, it, it was just a muddy affair, right? And so you would arrive with your open-toed sandals, you would arrive, and your feet would be filthy. Maybe the rest of you was clean, but your feet at least would be filthy. And so in most homes in the Middle East, there would have been a set-aside section, an area in the home where there would be a basin, a bowl, and towel, where the slave of the home would be appointed a role, and that is to clean the feet of the guests. But here's the thing. The slave tonight is the master. And the master performs what the lowest member of the household would normally perform. And so now we have a picture of Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus who turned water into wine. Jesus who walked on water. Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, the Son of God, the maker of all things, adopts the posture of a slave to wash the disciples' feet. And you can imagine their shock and the utter silence in the room. Listen to D.A. Carson. He says this. He says, teachers shouldn't do things like that. Not even equals would wash one another's feet. It's a job for servants. The first disciple, too surprised to move, too embarrassed to protest, felt his sandals being slipped off. And then the cool water and the dry towel. The master proceeded to the second disciple and to the third. All the while, the silence was deafening. Why? Well, consider whose hands are rubbing the mud and dirt off of the feet of these 12 sinful, uneducated mortals. Whose hands are these? It's the hands of God. The hands that cause the sun to rise every day. The same hands that uphold every piece of matter in the universe. These are the hands that are washing the disciples' feet. And then suddenly, out of this shocking silence... Guess who speaks up? Peter, right? It's always Peter who breaks the silence. And he objects. Look at verse 6. We're going to read from verse 6 to 11. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's a quick thinker. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So, so what, is, what is this action that's unfolding? Is, is it just a common courtesy, you know, to clean their feet before supper? No, no, it's a whole lot more than that, right? In this act of humble service, not only do we see a um, beautiful act of leadership, you know, this could be a great leadership text about how we should serve one another, and it is, but it's much more than that. And here's why, because in verse 8, Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, all of a sudden, he's not talking about feet anymore, right? All of a sudden, it's actually you, Peter. This, this is something much bigger. It's a picture of the gospel. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. All of a sudden, Peter realizes what's actually being enacted here. This isn't just a common courtesy. This is a critical instruction. My whole body, my whole life needs to be cleansed from the stain of sin. And Jesus then proceeds to wash everyone's feet, including Judas, who he then says, but not all of you are clean. Again, Jesus is not just talking about feet, right? He's talking about our souls being cleansed. Judas, think about this. Judas had his feet cleaned, but his heart never was. And then Jesus says something interesting in verse 10. Look at this. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, the one who's been cleansed, does not need to wash except for his feet but he's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. It's an interesting way of saying it, but what's happening here is Jesus is illustrating salvation. And he's saying that when you have been washed by me, it's a picture of what's going to happen on Friday when Christ sheds his blood. There is blood for the forgiveness of sins. And if you are washed by me, you will be clean and you don't need to be washed again. It's, it's the doctrine that the, the, the Bible teaches called justification, that, that our sins have been forgiven and we've also been cleansed, not only forgiven, but cleansed and received Christ's righteousness. But then why the thing about the feet still being dirty? And most commentaries agree, and I would agree with it, it's, it's a pointer to the reality that although we are saved and justified, we still live in a dirty world, and so we pick up dirt on our feet. And it's a picture, it's an illustration of sanctification. That although I am cleansed and although I'm in right standing with the Holy God, I'm not perfect, and I still sin. 
And my actions, although I am cleansed, I don't need to be born again, 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 again. He says you don't need to be cleansed again, but your feet still get dirty. So live a life of repentance. It's a picture of sanctification. There's so much more we could say. We need to move on. Let's go to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Here in verse 15, we have the instruction. The instruction is that we as Christ's disciples must follow his humble example. Does this mean we are to wash one another's feet? Is this a, an instruction? No, it's an illustration. It doesn't mean you, you don't have, you can do that, that's okay, but realize it's an illustration of service. An illustration of sacrifice, an illustration of humility, that, that nothing should be below us. And you might object and go, oh, but I don't like that person. You know, he's a jerk, or he's a pain, or he's irritating. Just bear in mind that Jesus washed Judas's feet. And so therefore, no one is below us. No one is beyond us, right? And so a church member, let, let me just speak to a few different things here. Church member, know that that, that service is a delight. That, that commitment to the body, which is what Jesus is doing here. He's committed to this body of believers, the 12 of them. Even the irritating ones. Is not beyond us. Dads and moms, there are many dads and moms who, who serve not just by being in the church, but participating in the church and serving and committing and coming with their kids and bags and nappy bags and prams and, and it's difficult and it's awkward, but, but you need to know that, that although the world's not applauding you, God is. That this is part of your humble service. And young adults and youth who offer to serve in kids ministry and youth ministry and media and sound and well done. You're in good company. And then verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And at this point, we can't ignore what's been going on in the room. There is this incredible contrast between humble servanthood 
and the self-serving traitor. And right through to the end, Jesus keeps warning Judas. Right the way through, he keeps warning him, do you really want to do this? And, and, and you might go, oh, but why ask the question if it was planned? And we're back there, right? And we're dealing again with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. But, but hear me, the betrayal by Judas, yes, was part of God's plan, but it doesn't mean that Judas had no part in it. He was fully engaged, freely he was not a robot in the process. Judas could have changed the situation if he could have changed his heart. But his heart was evil. His heart's desire was not the glory of Christ, but his own glory. His choice to betray Jesus was not an afterthought. It was part of his character. We will consider more of this when we get to chapter 18, when the betrayal actually happens. But for now, let me just say this. I think we need to see this, that it is possible to be close to Jesus, but not surrendered to Jesus. It is possible to be interested in Jesus, but not actually submitted to Jesus. It's possible to like Jesus, but not actually be satisfied by Jesus. We will come back to those thoughts when we get to chapter 18. But let me wrap this up. In conclusion, I want to revisit just a few verses. Verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having loved his own... What, what does John mean by before? Before the feast of Passover. Well, a few things. He means it's Thursday night. Because the Passover is on Friday, Good Friday, right? There is something happening a little bit later. And so it's Thursday night, which means that the supper isn't the Passover meal. They're in the upper room, and they're at the table, and they're about to have supper, which becomes the Lord's Supper. But what we realize here is that it's Thursday night, and so there's no lamb on the table. That's still to happen. Some scholars say the next day, some say later. But it's still going to happen. The point being this, what are they going to eat on this upper room dinner opportunity? Well, we don't know. We have no idea. But it's unlikely it was lamb, because the lamb was still being prepared. And so you can imagine that in this upper room on Thursday night, there are a whole lot of other rooms in Jerusalem. There are a whole lot of other rooms in Israel that are filled with people. Why? Because it's Passover and all the Jews from all over the nation have gathered in Jerusalem. Why? Because this is the, the final feast. This is the ultimate feast. This is the feast commemorating the Exodus. And so Jerusalem is buzzing with people. It is packed. It is chock-a-block. There is no room anywhere. And in every home, there are lambs being prepared for sacrifice, for the feast. And John says that this, this moment of washing the feet is happening before the feast, which then means that when Jesus dies on that Good Friday afternoon, 
And while he is dying on the cross, there are thousands of homes throughout the area who are busy eating the lamb. While the lamb of God is hanging on a cross. It's hard to imagine that without actually coming to tears. And then I want you to see this. That what Jesus enacts is not just a humble service. But in verses 4 and 5, he is very intentional. In verse 4, it says, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Jesus rose from the table. There they are in the upper room, a large table. Some say they were reclining. You don't really sit at the table. They were like lying on their sides. But he intentionally gets up from his rightful place. His rightful place at the supper table where he sat as the honored guest. He gets up just as the eternal Son of God in perfect fellowship with the Father from all eternity, 33 years earlier, got up from his throne in glory. From his rightful place, from the throne of heaven, he rose. He rose from his position. And what did he do? He laid aside his garments, his eternal glory. Jesus took on human flesh. He laid aside his glory. 33 years earlier, he laid aside the glory of his exalted position and he wraps himself in humanity. He took on the form of a servant, the humble, vulnerable servant. Jesus is enacting his whole life's drama. As he was born in Bethlehem, the word became flesh. He rose from supper. He laid aside his glory. He took on humanity. He came into this world. And then verse 5 says that he poured out water to cleanse their filthy feet. Just as in a few hours time, he's going to pour out his own blood to cleanse them from their sins. And then when it's all done, what does he do? He rises, he's finished washing all their feet, and he goes back to the table and he sits at his rightful place. After shedding his blood, Jesus is exalted after three days to his rightful place in glory. This isn't just about Leadership principles serve one another. This is about the glory of Christ giving his life up for us, coming to serve us, not just on Good Friday, but his whole life, his whole life for you and I. And so let me ask you a question as we close. Have you asked Christ to wash you? Have you been washed? Have you been cleansed? This is the hardest step, right? This is the hardest step for people. 
for, for people because it was also hard for Peter, remember? His interaction. Why was it difficult for him? Well, because it's difficult to admit that we need cleansing. Right? It, it's, it's helpful when you see the dirt. But, but the problem with humanity is we don't see our own sinfulness until we're honest with ourselves. And if you have been washed, I want to invite us to celebrate that. That we've been washed, that we've been cleansed. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we get to John 13 and 14, 15, 16, 17, thank you that we do get to slow down. Thank you that we do get to have a closer look at the loving ministry of Christ to his disciples. And in this moment, right here, right now, we are, we are awestruck at the servant-heartedness of Jesus. We just are amazed at our Savior, that he would do all of this for us. Lord, don't just only wash my feet. Wash all of me. I need your cleansing. We need you to wash us, cleanse us. And if you have washed us, Lord, we, we repeat those words as a confession of thanksgiving. Thank you, Jesus, that you have washed us. We need these living waters of life to sustain us. What a glorious Savior you are. Thank you that you do all the washing. You do the washing. You do the cleansing. You do the drying. You do the mopping up. We, we know this to be true. Lord, this is our testimony. We mess up all the time. And you keep washing and you keep cleansing and you keep drying and you keep mopping up after us. Thank you, Jesus. What a great Savior you are. We are so thankful. Thank you that no dirt is too big for you. Even Judas. And, and Lord, we sometimes feel like we've betrayed you. We've let you down. Sometimes we're acting more like Judas than like Peter. And so to, today, Lord, we want to say, wash us. Wash us again. Cleanse us. And if we are already saved, then just wash our feet, please, Lord. Wash us of the remaining sin and guilt. The, the sin that clings so easily. Wash us, we pray. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to close by singing this song together. Let's stand and let's sing together.